Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, we have Brian Scudamore, founder and CEO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK, which started out as a side hustle in college and now has over a thousand trucks throughout 180 locations in the United States, Canada, and Australia. Brian is also author of Willing to Fail, How Failure Can Be Your Key to Success, where his philosophy stems from his belief in the power of dreaming big, taking risks, and learning from mistakes. In this episode, Chad and Brian discuss how he scaled 1-800-GOT-JUNK with a franchise model, the struggles Brian faced, how he overcame them, and how he continues to learn by asking the right questions. Brian, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chad. So Brian, if we met at maybe a dinner or an event or something like that, and I had no idea what you did, uh, and we started talking about work, how would you describe your role and uh, what you're up to? Well, so 30 years of running a business. So I'm an entrepreneur. I've always had a passion for building businesses. And my my first baby, so to speak, is 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I have built a company that started with one truck back in 1989. And 30 years later, we're a, what are we today? About a $370 million business in Canada, the United States, and Australia. And while we're in the junk removal business, we're really in the franchise space, helping to empower entrepreneurs. We've got about 250 partners, owners who have partnered with us to build amazing junk removal businesses under the 1-800-GOT-JUNK brand throughout those three countries. And we've since expanded on today to three other spaces, which I'm sure we'll talk about more on this call, but window washing with Shack Shine. We've got You Move Me, a moving company, and then, of course, a, a painting business where we go p- paint people's homes in a day, and that company is called Wow One Day Painting. So when you ask me uh, at dinner, what, what do I do for a living? I, I inspire entrepreneurship. I'm incredibly proud of what we've built and, more importantly, how we've built it and we can give a platform to others. That's uh, what life's all about to me. I love it. And uh, let's back it up to the beginning where you mentioned 30 years ago, uh, I think you were around 18 when you got started with 1-800-JUNK. What was that origin story there? And uh, why did you start the business? Well, I was one course short of graduating from high school. I was a bad student. I was very ADD and constantly having trouble focusing in school. All my friends were going to college and I thought, oh, I got to figure out, you know, how I'm going to follow along with them. I don't want to be left out. So I talked my way into college, but I needed to find the money for the tuition. There I was one day thinking about my future and what kind of job I was going to get for the summer when I noticed a beat up old pickup truck with plywood side panels on the box in front of me. And I looked at that truck and I went, ah, that's an idea. I looked at Mark's hauling his business And I said, what if I went out and bought a truck and started hauling junk? That might be a great way to pay for university. So I bought a truck a week later. I formed a company called The Rubbish Boys, which was just me, but a vision for something bigger. And um, started hauling junk. I uh, had a little pickup truck with the plywood sides and would knock on people's doors when they had a pile of uh, junk in the alley, the laneway, and offer to cart it away for a fee. And that basic business model has become what 1-800-GOT-JUNK is today. It was about eight years into the business when I decided to rebrand under 1-800-GOT-JUNK as a way to have a name and a phone number be the same as we expanded throughout uh, North America. And in those early days, was there a moment where you started getting calls from people? Was there a moment where you realized that, wow, this is a service and uh, a company that could you know, reach the world, this could grow and grow and grow? Um, or were, was that not even 
in your uh, in thought process back then? I think the first million, which actually took me eight years to get to that point in revenue. So I did some research and started to toy with the franchise model. I had always been a big fan of what Ray Kroc had built with McDonald's, having other people have skin in the game. And I created this franchise prototype, which we expanded to Victoria on Vancouver Island, four hours from Vancouver. We then expanded into the United States. Seattle was only two and a half hours south. And then it became, okay, let's, let's really crank up this franchise model and start to accelerate things. And, and uh, no looking back. I mean, it, while it took us a million, or sorry, eight years to get to a million in revenue, we do a million in revenue on most given days today. That's, yeah, that's incredible. And when you rebranded to 1-800-GOT-JUNK and you started to pursue the franchise model and build that, I'm curious, why did you choose the franchise model? You alluded to skin in the game, which is very important. Um, was there a mentor that recommended it or did you discover it in your research? What was that process like? I think it was really the inspiration of what Ray Kroc had built in McDonald's. As a kid, I grew up with McDonald's, not eating there all the time, but being surrounded by that business and always was a bit of a fan of the, the business success story that owners became wealthy and created a lifestyle for themselves by buying into what was originally the McDonald's brothers idea. And I love the fact that McDonald's developed these systems, cookie cutter, how to do each and every process where you didn't have to reinvent the wheel. So when someone comes into 1-800-GOT-JUNK or maybe it's Shack Shine, window washing, gutter cleaning, and they look at our business and they want to know that we figured out the processes, how to market the business, how to find great people, how to run the service as a technician, and that we figured things out so they don't have to. I think entrepreneurs today often spend so much time trying to figure out what is my idea? What's the next big idea out there and how can I find it? But I think a lot of times it's much more about how do you quickly begin the execution versus spending so much time trying to catch lightning in, the bo in a bottle and think of, you know, what's the next Instagram look like? Right. And I think those systems that uh, McDonald's has perfected and at really every other franchise uh, is kind of emulating them in, in a way are really hard to build, though. Um, how long did it take you and your teams to iterate those systems and uh, were the first franchises where you could just completely overworked and tapped out? Or as you started to open those first franchises, did it make less work for you and your team? I'm curious as to what that process was like rolling it out. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that, you know, systems do take a long time. I read a book by Michael Gerber called The E-Myth, The E-Myth Revisited. And that book was all about build your franchise out like a, sorry, build your business out like a franchise, even if you don't anticipate ever franchising, because franchises succeed based on the level of systematization, that they figured things out and you replicate those best practices over and over and over. So our best practices came from practice. It's right. like anything. It takes you time to figure out what does the first version look like and how do you iterate and get better and better and better. I'd say it took us 10 years to figure out the best practices um, for the most part, before we were then able to document them and share them with others and train people on them. And that's when the exciting tipping point, if you will, of our business where things really started to take off. And in those first years or that first decade, there were definitely some dark moments, I'm sure. Uh, from reading your story, I think you had to lay off a number of people at certain times. 
Are, are there any dark nights of the soul that you're willing to talk about or you could share? Yeah, I would share everything. I, you know, I wrote a book about failure and, and talks about a lot of the dark moments. My book's called WTF, Willing to Fail. And I believe failure is a gift. I really believe that in sports and business and anything in life, we make mistakes, but as long as we're able to embrace those mistakes, be grateful for that moment and learn, that becomes a springboard for bigger success. So one of my darkest days, and, and yes, it was dark when I was there, I, I really struggled, was in five years into the business, I had a team of 11 employees. And there's that old expression, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. I think I had nine bad apples. Oh, so wow. I was faced with a decision and I said, you know, what do I do here? Do I just get rid of the nine? I decided that the, the culture was poisoned and that I, I didn't want to risk having two people left who might have been tainted by the, the others. So I fired all 11 and I made a bold decision and I, I sat everybody down together in one meeting and I started with two words. I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've let you down, that I failed you by not maybe finding the right people or treating you right. I didn't give them the love and the support they needed to be successful. And the challenge became, if I'm going to build a business that had this happy, smiley attitude and these people weren't that, what, what was my route forward? And really it was starting again. So I wiped the, the slate clean, which is easier said than done because for me, the darkness came from, I've got five trucks, half a million in revenue. Now it's just me. How do you get out there and rebuild? And it took me, I don't remember exactly because it was a hard time, but three to six months to start to put happy, friendly, clean cut professionals in place who would help me take my business to the next level. And we today have the, this mantra that it's all about people, find the right people and treat them right. And that was learned from that dark day of firing all 11 people. And I think that that is an excellent story because from that, you have really started to focus on culture, not started, but you've been focusing on culture uh, for a long time with the business. When it comes to building culture, there is a lot of content that is online and talks about it. But what are some strategies or tips that you do on a day-to-day -day basis that help you build and maintain that healthy culture? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's pretty simple stuff. People overcomplicate it, in, in my opinion. And so for your audience, let me try and keep it simple and share what works for us. Sure. We call it the beer and barbecue test. When, when you get out there and you interview an employee, what we teach everybody here at all levels who might be interviewing is, is ask yourself the question, would you have a beer with that person? Do you like them? Are they, are they interesting and interested? Do they have a shared passion for building something? Do they really just fit with the type of values we have and the, the vision we have for building something bigger and better together. That's step one. And the second step is then ask yourself, how would they fit at a company barbecue? We love to throw great parties. When we have a barbecue, there's lots of diversity, there's introverts, there's extroverts, but people somehow fit as a community. Could you see this person showing up to a company barbecue and fitting? Could you see them having fun? Do they, are they a little quirky like us? Do they just somehow fit? And by asking those two questions of yourself, that I think simplifies the, the formula for how to find great people. If you think of people often ask, how do you find great people? And I often turn around and say, how do you find friends? 
And people have trouble answering that question because they're just like, well, it just happens. Well, no, it doesn't just happen. No. <laughs> You're very selective. You right. take your time. You don't waste your time with people that aren't honest or whatever you're looking for in, in friends. Sure. And so the same thing, I think when we interview employees and we look for people in our business, we often put the job first and we don't think of their cultural fit. Uh, we put that second and or, or sometimes we don't even consider it. So in, in O2E Brands, our parent company, which stands for Ordinary to Exceptional, we're taking ordinary businesses and ordinary people and making them exceptional through customer experience. Every single person we interview, we want to know that they really pass the beer and barbecue test and that they're people that uh, we hire on attitude and, and train on skill. Wise words. And when it comes to you know business uh, operations and expanding and entering new markets and things like that, um, how do you go about educating yourself? Do you, are you reading a lot? Are you online looking at things? Are you talking with the smartest people in your space? What's your learning routine like? Yeah, we've all heard the, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. So I'm definitely putting myself in the, in the right rooms. I'm definitely putting myself in places like YPO, the Young Presidents Organization, which I was a member of for years, or EO, the Entrepreneur Member Organization, which I'm a part of still today. I'll often go to different marketing events or trade shows, and I will just try and learn from others who are experts. And so by being the, the least smart person, if you will, in a room, that's how I learn. I find it... Uh, I'm very ADD, so books don't work as well for me. Short articles are easier, but I do find that learning from others, asking lots of questions. I've always been a curious person, and I, I realize today that I have so much to learn, um, and, and that's where the joy comes from, is just learning how to be better and how to make our people here better at everything they do. Definitely. And being around a table of folks who are smarter than you in an industry can be really intimidating. So for a lot of entrepreneurs, they might you know, take the initiative and get out there and get in those places and those meetings. Uh, however, there are things like imposter syndrome and uh, you know, sometimes they can be afraid to speak up or ask questions. Is there any advice you have for entrepreneurs who are looking to be more courageous and uh, take those risks and speak up when they are, when they do get a seat at the table? Yeah. So, you know, a, a story, I mean, people often say to me, they're like, well, Brian, you can go sit at any room now because look what you've built with 1-800-GOT-JUNK and O2E brands. And, you know, you'll never be the stupidest person in the room and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, that's not the case. I am, I am going out with great courage, realizing I've got so much to learn. So I was at the TED conference, the big global TED that they had here in Vancouver, and they throw these Jeffersonian dinners that you can sign up for. Well, I didn't go sign up for a marketing dinner. I signed up for something that was so out of my comfort zone, which was AI, artificial intelligence. I sat down at a dinner and there were about 12 of us in a private room in a restaurant and they did the introductions around the room. And I felt extremely intimidated. There was the person who created Siri. There was a person there who was the head of robotics for GM. There were professors from top branded universities throughout the United States who specialized in robotics. I mean, these were people that were all so talented that worked in that space. There's me, little guy from a junk removal company that is just <laughs> going, I don't even really know what AI is. But I asked the most questions and I showed up with a curious, hungry mentality. And the amount of learning I walked away from, from that three-hour dinner was absolutely mind-blowing. Now, what I say, the advice I give for others is, imagine missing that opportunity. 
Imagine being too scared to show up and sit down in the room for care of what people think of you. And I would imagine too, that the information and the insights that you learned from that probably demystified a lot of the AI and machine learning space because it can be very intimidating at first. However, it's still the early days there. It's, it's just kicking off as an industry. Um, are there any plans you could share about how you're going about implementing machine learning at O2E and your companies? Yeah, it's a great question. So I, I definitely think that they simplified it for me. And these are smart people who are used to explaining con, uh, complicated concepts to others in layman's terms. But what I understood that AI really is, it's not robots making decisions, it's shaping data. It's really understanding that you can look for patterns and how do you teach your computers to look for the right patterns. So if I look at O2E brands, one of, of the big opportunities for us is to say, well, we have a moving company, everybody that moves Imagine understanding the value of that data of the the journey, the customer journey, if you will, of when someone moves, it's 90% likely that they have junk removal. It's 60% likely that they will paint their homes within six months. These things all tie together. So how can we use the shaping of data to give us better information, more timely information that helps us make stronger, more impactful decisions? Very cool. And with your all your franchises, I would imagine that you have some stories or basically just success stories of folks when you either met them or when they first got a franchise to where they are now. Are there any favorite stories you like to tell uh, about your team? Well, I just love watching how quickly some of these people can grow. So if I think of Paul Guy, our first franchise partner, he just celebrated his 20th anniversary. I remember that he worked for my Vancouver franchise. He was based in Vancouver and had a girlfriend in Toronto. He kept going back and forth every couple of weeks. And I suggested the idea to him, why don't you run the first franchise in Toronto? So he drove a truck across the country, lost most of his uh, marketing materials, uh, you know, a hundred miles away from Vancouver as he started to make his cross country journey because he didn't have a proper tarp. But, uh, you know, the guy gets across the country and he calls me and he says, Brian, I've got my truck, I'm in Toronto, I'm ready to start the business, but I realized that the city will take just about everything. They'll haul away the junk for free. What did I do? I wasted all this money on a truck. And I calmed him down and I said, listen, you you don't know that this business isn't gonna work there. You've got a truck, give it a couple of months, give it 30 days, let's just try and see what happens. He became uh, a million dollar revenue generating franchise owner in his first full calendar year. So if you recall from earlier in this interview, it took me eight years to get there. He got there in a year. And so sometimes there's these moments where franchise partners think of giving up. They think of throwing in the towel uh, because things just don't look good, the decision they've made. But the reality is, imagine if he did give up and didn't start that business, our entire industry, uh, our entire franchise organization would be different hadn't he just followed through and, and taken that step. Yeah. And that type of revenue is atypical for a you know, small business in their first year, but this is a franchise. Are, are there any pros and cons of uh, franchises you know, over small businesses? Or how do you think about that? Because in my mind, I think it's something like 64% of small business owners don't ever get to profitability or something like that. Um, so what's what are the pros and cons there? Because many people want to start a business uh, and they aren't aware of franchises at all. Yeah, Chad, you, you know, you and I both know that building a business is not easy, but I think that building a franchise for the right personality, franchising isn't for everybody, building a franchise 
can often be a shortcut to growth. And I believe we're in this world where everyone talks about life hacks. Let's hack things and make them easier. If someone wants to learn about starting a business and wants to take that leap, an option is getting out and getting the recipe book to get out there and start instead of by, by scratch being coached and told what to do and given some direction, there's flexibility within a framework. So what I love about the way we, we run a franchise organization is we say, here's the things that you can't change. You can't change the look and feel of the brand, the professionalism, the marketing, but you can get out there and find creative new ways to market. You can sure. find new ways to get customers and hire employees and how you treat them. So it's the right model for some, but it does become a fast track or a springboard towards revenue growth. We have, so Paul Guy, again, who I mentioned, and we've got other franchise partners, uh, you know, Tyler and Josh in Kansas City, they've got a $20 million business right now uh, between the territories they own. Paul Guy has a $60 million business. So they've looked at this and said, do I need to be the guy creating? No, I can come in and take the system and create an empire rather than um, seeding an idea. Now, as I said, not everybody wants to do a franchise route because uh, like myself, I love to create. If I, I love to cook and I'm the person that instead of following a recipe, I'd love just to kind of mix and mash things and just sort of see how oh, it turns there. out and try and invent on my own. Yeah. I mean, that's the best because uh, that recipe, that food is completely unique and it might never exist like that again. So I, uh, I'm right there with you. Uh, go far from the recipes. Brian, when you're you know, getting ready to go to bed now after a long day. Is there anything that keeps you up at night now that you're still trying to figure out? Um, I know it's not like that all the time, but a lot of people look at a successful entrepreneur and say they've got it all figured out. Um, What are you still trying to figure out right now and what occasionally keeps you up at night? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, you know, if I look at myself now or I look at myself 20 years ago, I've always been good at generally compartmentalizing things and saying, okay, I'm home. I'm with my family. I'm no longer going to focus on work. I'm going to turn off my social media or when I'm away on holiday, my assistant changes my passcode so I can't get into social media (laughs) or email, but I've always worked hard to compartmentalize. And so even when I go to sleep, I have a routine, which I I do, you know, 99% of nights is as I'm going to sleep, I think of at least five things I'm grateful for. So I'm just expressing my gratitude in my mind of at least five things. Sometimes it's 10. And what that does is that that helps me not just fall asleep, but it also helps me to sort of go, you know what? I don't need to worry about anything. I got the best life ever. And I always have. And so we can make a choice as human beings to say, are we living the best life ever? Maybe we want to improve and grow and change things. But each and every day, there's something to be grateful for. And I find that gives me great peace in not uh, staying up at night worrying. Sure. And did you always have those types of habits and routines and mental models? Or at what point in your career did you really get serious about developing them? Yeah, I didn't always have those habits. So I am a lifelong learner. As we talked about, I get out and go to different conferences and trade shows and other industries, and I'm learning from people constantly. So I don't know if there was a moment. I think I'm a a student of life and I think things are always getting better. You know, have I learned something today? Will I learn something tomorrow? Of course. And that's what keeps things uh, exciting, you know, and and I just, I, I really do. While I don't love to read, I love to to learn and ask questions. A big thing for me is languages. I'm really diving into learning Italian right now. Uh, I love my, my French language. And 
So for me, it's how do you create things? How do you get better? How do you just keep the mind fresh and, and on its A game? Sure. And do those different pursuits uh, like learning languages or other hobbies you have, um, do you feel that they're really important for people to have? I, I feel we can, as entrepreneurs, get very, very singularly focused in the business and forget to focus on ourselves and, you know, creating a life that is uh, wonderful, both inside and outside the business. Um, how do you think about that? And uh, do you have any tips for entrepreneurs who are looking to do do more outside their business? I think it's very important. I think that if I look at myself uh, 10 to 15 years in the biz- into the business, all I wanted to talk about and all I would talk about, or, or even for that matter, knew how to talk about was business. All my friends I spent time with were people that worked in the business. I didn't have things like I do outside today. I've got my, my skiing, my, I've got some ski racers in the family, I've got uh, my cycling habits and, and activities. And, and so I find having things to talk about and be excited about outside of business actually brings so much more to the world of, of growing a business, but it, it was unhealthy. I mean, it really was, it was, I, I didn't know how to talk to my parents. You know, their, their first question was how's biz. And that's right. what we talk about. <laughs> and, and I didn't know how to ask them about what was going on in their lives. So it was something I had to uh, work at changing and glad I did. So I'd love to shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, marketing because I think 1-800-JUNK and O2E brands, I think you, you all are doing some incredible things in marketing and, and you have, that's how, how you've built the business. Um, when let's start with undercover boss is how was that experience and uh, why did you choose to do it? Yeah, well, it was a super fun experience and, and, you know, why did we choose to do it? We pitched them several times on the idea because we thought we've done well with free press. We've been on the Oprah Winfrey show, wall street journal, CNN, you name it. And we've sought press as our, as a tactic to help build awareness. So we pitched them. They finally said yes. And it meant a day traveling across, or sorry, a week traveling across the country, meeting different franchise owners. What got me excited about actually doing it was, wow, what an opportunity to see our business in action, our employees in action, see what's going well and where some of the, the slip ups are. Uh, I soon realized there was always a camera on everybody. So everybody was always on their best behavior. Certain you know, things uh-huh. that you might expect would go wrong wouldn't really go wrong because people were just being careful because there was a camera. Now they didn't know it was for undercover boss, but they knew it was for something. And, um, (laughs) but it, but it was fun. It was an interesting experience because, uh, you know, I felt like a reality TV, uh, you know, cast member. And for that entire week, you've got cameras shadowing you everywhere. And it was, it was super exciting, but it, it, it was a great promo. I remember when it ran and it ran not just in Canada, but the United States and Australia. And, and we were getting calls from all over the place, people interested in our business, wanting to be a franchise owner. And it was, uh, it was something neat that everybody got excited around. And from that experience, did that help shape uh, the integration and partnership you have today with the show Hoarders. Um, and I'd be curious to know what was that process like? And um, yeah, why do you want to continue to be in these uh, these shows? Well, Hoarders came, I believe, before Undercover Boss did, and they approached us and they used our junk removal services and fell in love with how we did things and said, we, we really want to write you in as a character in the, the script. And so we were on just about every show for seven years while that series ran and we would haul away the junk, get paid for it and end up getting free press. So, so who wouldn't want that, that free press in today's 
marketing world, we're using social media, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn to, to share our stories and, and talk about what's going on in our business to help inspire others. But really, it's, it's just a, a great marketing tool. And if I look at some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs, the, the uh, Richard Bransons of the world, they understand the power in stunts and getting out there and telling stories to the press. And it's amazing what, what kind of activity and, and enthusiasm those tactics can generate. Definitely. And when it comes to the business today, too, what are some of the most exciting pieces of it for you? Uh, I would be curious to know, is there any exciting thing coming down the pike right now that you can share with us? So the most exciting thing for me in life beyond my, my family, of course, is watching other entrepreneurs grow. And I have an executor here, an implementer who is, if I'm the visionary, Eric is our, our implementer, our, our president, our COO. And what I love about one thing I've learned from Eric is that exciting new things aren't always the answer. A lot of right. times the best way to growth is just slow and steady. Just keep at it, keep pushing and do the things that work. So I don't have anything new for you. I don't have any, you know, fifth brand we're launching right now because our, our hands are full with four. What, what is exciting, what I do love is just the amount of energy we're, we're drawing towards people that consider a, a franchise as a business opportunity that they would have never before looked at because of the way we're doing it, because of the fun, unique culture that we've got behind helping to give people a business education while actually running the business. So nothing new. Um, by 2022, we will be a billion dollar business. We're this year at 444 million is our, our current trend rate for all four brands combined. So uh, it's exciting to know the size and scope of, of what we're building. Now, I throw that out there, not from a bragging standpoint, but just to give a sense of the momentum that starts to get built. And, um, you know, money is a, a measurement for me. It's a bit of a yardstick of, you know, I'm not measuring my bank account. I'm measuring the size and scale of what we're building. I've never been a money motivated person. I got my little Toyota pickup truck and, you know, I'm not a, a material uh, type guy, but I love just watching other people grow. When, when Paul Guy in Toronto uh, buys, bought his new Audi uh, R8, you know, like to <laughs> me, that's something important to him. I'd never own sure. one, but that's pretty exciting knowing that was one of his dreams. And so whatever success looks like to a franchise owner, if we can be just one little tiny part of helping them make their dreams happen, that's pretty fun stuff. I love it. And you mentioned earlier, Eric, your COO who joined back in 2011. How has your relationship with Eric grown over the years? Uh, you mentioned some important wisdom from him earlier on, uh, but I would be curious to know for a lot of other entrepreneurs out there, that's their number one role they're looking to hire for. How do you go about finding and then building with your COO? Yeah, so what, what Eric and I do very well is it's a bit of a, a yin and yang. I mean, a, a, a two heads are better than one, whatever you want to call it. We, we call it the two in the box model of leadership that what I bring to the table in vision and strategy and culture and what he brings to the table in, in leadership and, and people development and systems and execution, those two go so well together that two heads are better than one. And he's freed me up to do the things that I'm great at, that I love to do. And he'd probably say that I've allowed him to do the same thing. So our relationship is one, first and foremost, of trust. 
of supporting each other's dreams and goals while working together to really build a great business. And if I look at, I've had three COOs and Eric being the most recent and hopefully the one who will be here forever is he and I just have a magic to the, the fit being so strong that things just do work uh, incredibly well. But again, that's also come from a failure. I had a, a person that came from Starbucks who was one of their ex us presidents and it really, it, we failed together because I didn't pick the right leadership, the right person for me. And that was a challenge, but it, it got me being reflective and introspective to learn what was I missing? What, what, did, what, how did I pick the wrong person and what could the right person look like? And it got me to be more thoughtful in, in my, my next search. If you are to look at your days now, is there an average day for you? Are you doing many different things? Basically, I'd be curious to know, what does your schedule look like? And is there ever a normal day? And if so, what's that look like? There's a weekly structure, but then within the days, they're generally very different. So my day, the structure that works for me is Monday is my day out of the office. I call it my my buffer day. It's my day where I go out and I focus on things that I need to catch up on thinking, planning, things where I don't want to be interrupted in the office. I'll go work in a coffee shop. I'll go work in six coffee shops, whatever it takes. I kind of move around a bit. And uh, then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm generally, if I'm not traveling, I'm back to back in meetings. That's the time at the junction or head office. That's when I'm connecting with the team and, and focused on driving the business forward. And then Fridays are what I call my free day. Friday would be the day where I'm spending time with family or on myself. I might be going for a bike ride or a ski, but it's time for me disconnected from my business so that I can recharge, so that I can think of new ideas. And it's an incredibly important part of my routine. Now, I do things like every phone call I have to take, I try when possible to have it scheduled for my commute time to and from work. I try and be efficient that way. So I've got time face to face with people in the office when I need it. So I've got structure, but what I'm working on projects, it can be anything from the book launch we did six months ago for WTF willing to fail. It could be on some PR that's coming up. It could be for some new strategies to find franchise partners and owners. As the priorities change, I find that I get to focus on uh, unique brands, new ideas, um, but having the structure at the same time. Sure. And when it comes to professional development, uh, if I read correctly, you studied at MIT and then Harvard for the executive programs there. Um, why did you choose to do that? And what did those programs help teach you? Yeah, so I did a, uh, an executive program at Harvard and then something at MIT called the Birthing of Giants, which was a three-year program, one week a year for, for three years. And we ended up falling in love with the, the people, the structure of the program that four of us got together and created a reunion class called Gathering of Titans. And uh, we're now in our 18th year and we go every April to MIT's campus in Boston. And what I, what I love about these things is learning from peers. I found Harvard very challenging, very difficult because it was a lot of case studies and a lot of reading. It was super exciting to be there, but it was not as effective for me as the type of entrepreneur I am learning, you know, the MIT style was us learning from others was lots of Q and a was lots of time connecting with different speakers with varied experiences from religion and politics to athletics to business. 
And so each and every year, I find that uh, I get a lot of growth and learning from that gathering of titans. Definitely. And with your book, WTF, what was the uh, process like for that? And why did you choose to write a book? Um, did you record audio or are you, did you write it out? Um, and yeah, what was that process like? Yeah, I fought writing a book. Uh, the Wizard of Ads, as he's affectionately known, who's uh, our, our, our creative on our radio and some of our other things, uh, a gentleman named Roy H. Williams out of Austin, Texas. Roy kept saying, you got to write a book, you got to write a book. And I just said, my ego doesn't need a book. Time, I don't <laughs> have the time to write a book. And he said, well, it's not about you and your ego. It's about sharing impactful stories of what you all learned in business that others could learn from. So he sold me on that message and we sat down together to do uh, a co-authorship and Roy started by question after question on record, uh, asking me things about my childhood and about the business. And he said, I'll make it easy for you. Let me just ask you questions all day. And we spent 10 hours together and then many phone calls later, but it started a process of uh, him creating the initial framework of the book and then us injecting stories and and tweaks along the way and ended up with a product that I love. I wrote a book that wasn't too big. Uh, I wanted it to actually be bigger. And, and Roy said, you know what, think of your audience, think of who's reading this. And uh, we ended up with a book that, you know, five-star reviews uh, from all sorts of entrepreneurs all over the world that I feel proud because I don't look at this as my book. It would be easy just to go, ah, Brian Scudamore wrote a book. Well, no, I think of this as our stories. We are creating a business something bigger and better together. And I think that's reflected in the book that I contributed a very small piece to the 1-800-GOT-JUNK or the O2E brand story. I've been lucky enough to surround myself with smart, energetic, enthusiastic people who were as excited as me or perhaps more um, to build something together. And I'm curious to know in that process, did you remember or reflect on stories and realize that you hadn't shared these yet with your team and your company? Uh, did you have a lot of you know, new stories in there? And what was that uh, process of telling all of that? Was it, was it helpful to get it out of your head? Or what was that like? I think that the, the Wizard of Ads, Roy, he, he's such a good uh, interviewer. He's so good at coming up with questions that, yeah, he got me thinking about things that I'd forgotten about. Times growing up uh, partially raised by my grandmother and what that was like and challenges and struggles as a kid in school. It, it, was, it was neat to think it through. And I think wh why I appreciate the process was being able to share with people in our company, while things might have started with this idea of a way to pay for college and finding a junk truck, while being in a McDonald's drive-through, it was actually earlier on. And here is who Brian is and how he grew up. And it was just fun to tell some of the stories that, that shaped me while also trying to inspire new stories in, in others who might read the book on, on what might shape them. Definitely. And so when you were growing up and your grandmother was raising you, was there any uh, aspirational or were there any aspirational goals you had or did you want to be anything specific? Were you already working and hustling at a young age? Um, what was growing up like for you? I worked in my grandparents' army surplus store in San Francisco. They worked in this, they owned a little store in a dodgy end of, of the city, uh, right south of Market Street. And I remember working there and just learning so much about people and customer experience and just the game of building a business and ringing that old cash register. 
and I thought it was so much fun that I, I, I really felt I was destined to also run my own business. And it was, I think at an, at an early age, while some people, you know, dream of being, uh, you know, Superman or Wonder Woman or a fireman or whatever they might be, you know, I really dreamt of running a business. And I think it was something I knew at an early age because when I saw the fire that my, or I felt the fire that my parents, grandparents um, lit in my head and, and heart, I was just like, wow, this is unbelievable. I got to do this. And, and it, it's never felt like work or rarely does because it is so much fun. So your headquarters are in Vancouver now. Why'd you choose to move? So I didn't choose Vancouver. It, uh, it chose me. My, my father, who is a liver transplant surgeon, he adopted me. He married my mother. I was in San Francisco till I was about eight years old and he was a Canadian. And so we moved to Vancouver and, uh, you know, very grateful that we did because it's, uh, it's been home for me for, you know, the last 40 some odd years and, and love the city. It's near the mountains, the water, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so yeah, it, it, I didn't choose it. I was too young to. Sure. Very cool. And you mentioned the learning languages earlier. Are there any, if you have free time, are you looking at, uh, new you know movies series podcasts anything like that you mentioned you didn't like reading um are there any other mediums you're excited about right now yeah it's funny i don't like reading and i also don't like tv i like movies i like old movies i like going to movies but i'm not a sit around and watch tv guy i just i have trouble sitting still so i'd rather if i'm home and the kids are busy doing homework i'll go get on the peloton and and crank out some, uh, some calories or, you know, I'd love to get outside and do things outdoors, get on the paddleboard, get on the skis, do things with my kids. But I, I have trouble. I, I love technology and the ease it brings to our, our life and the systems it can create. But I also don't like being chained to television, the phone. Uh, again, I mentioned that to you that I, I love to do what I call uh, going dark, that when I'm away on vacation, I don't want to be connected to my phone and get all these texts and all these messages as to what's going on. And so literally we've, we've set it up where I didn't want it just to be a, Oh, it must be nice to be King kind of thing where I can go away and, and have that privilege. We wanted everybody in our community in the O2E brands family to be able to disconnect and enjoy time with friends and family when they're on vacation. We give five weeks paid vacation to every employee here in the business and we want them to take it in big chunks. And so if they're going to go away for two weeks, we want them to not have to check their email box and know that somebody's there as their backup to support them while they're, uh, while they're going dark. Do you think that constantly being connected or on social, social media, do you think that sabotages a lot of modern day entrepreneurs uh, or maybe distorts their thinking? Uh, what's your take on social media and constantly being connected? I think it does a couple of things. I think that it creates a lot of depression and, and doubt in people because they look at photos and they look at posts on social and they go, well, look at what that person's doing. How come I'm not that good? How come I'm uh, struggling? And as we all know, those posts aren't fully accurate. I, I wonder how much of them really are. And I found myself... 10 years into the business, when I joined the entrepreneur organization, I was a million dollars in business, but I was watching people who surrounded me who were 10 million in revenue or a hundred million. I was looking at them and their businesses and thinking they were in you know, these cool, sexy tech businesses. I'm in junk removal. I'm this little company. And uh, it brought me down, brought me down into a bit of a doom loop and a downward spiral. And I think social media accelerates that for people because everybody looks like they're just living the dream. So I think social is challenging that way. I also think in another way, it, it 
you go down a rabbit hole. You get sucked in. Brian, final two questions here. What's the best business advice that you've ever received or maybe the the top two pieces of advice? Well, number one, I'm, I'm not going to give you two because I think that uh, the, the first one is so incredibly important and has stuck with me forever and always will. I received it from a fellow named Greg Brophy, who's since passed on, but he was a great mentor of mine. He built and started and built a company called Shreddit, the largest shredding company in the world. And I remember Greg said to me once, he goes, don't ever, 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 ever compromise on the quality of people you bring into your organization. And it really is the most important advice because I think a company of men and women is only as strong as the people you bring in and treating those people right. And every time you compromise and you bring someone who isn't the right person or they're not in the right position in life to be in your business at that time, it, it, it doesn't work for either them or for you. And so it's something we remember each and every day that recruiting is one of the most important things we can ever do. So true. And Brian, thank you so much for being generous with your time. Final question here for all our listeners out there that are either in the trenches right now in their own business, or maybe they're an executive at an existing company. Uh, Is there any final thought you would leave for them? You know, my final thought is the power behind a vision. If you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. I remember when I went through my doom loop of comparing myself to others, I said, okay, let me get rid of the negativity. I went to my parents' summer cottage. They had this little cottage on the water and I took out a, a piece of paper one page double-sided, and I said, okay, pure positivity, what could the five-year future look like? And I started to write down things like we would be in the top 30 cities in North America, even though we were only in one at that time, I knew that we could be in every city bigger than Vancouver where we started. I said, we'd be the FedEx of junk removal. I said, we'd be on the Oprah Winfrey show. And I started to think through all these big, hairy, audacious goals. And I put them into writing in a format that read like, a description of the future. And when I started to share that painted picture with others, people latched onto it. They got excited. They started to see what I saw. If they didn't see what I saw, they got off the the ship and they went to a different company. But for the most part, it really helped me choose the right people and keep the people that believed in my vision. And I think my last piece of advice that is, is the power of a vision and how it's worked for me, how it's worked for others, whether athletes or any sort of leaders. I'd love to share that with your your audience. If anyone wants to send me a message on Instagram at Brian Scudamore and just say, send me a DM that says painted picture. I'll fire you off uh, one of our painted pictures and an article I wrote on how to create one. Awesome. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Chad. A lot of fun and uh, great questions. I learned a lot more uh, about myself by reflecting again. So thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, And if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right.
Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.